Welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins. This is episode 161. 160 episodes into the podcast. It's it's really kind of amazing to look back and realize that in a couple of weeks, uh, we will be at the one-year point of when I published the first episode of the podcast. 160 episodes in a year. I was hoping that we could average at least one episode a week and that in a year we would have 50 to 55 published. Uh, To have three times that many is quite a blessing to me. So thank you for being with us through the book of Revelation, the book of Job, uh, the messages around the Advent and Christmas season, and now most of the way through the Gospel of John. People ask me periodically, what are you doing next? And right now I'm debating uh, whether or not to depart from book study for a little bit and just talk about my favorite Bible stories and my perspective on each of those stories from the Old Testament and the New. Or to go to the book of Ephesians and study the book of Ephesians in light of the four times that it says in the heavenly realms. And what each of those mentions means for us, because each of them means something different. So that's my my current self-debate. Um, I'll settle it before we get done with the Gospel of John, and we will we will continue on. I probably will go uh, to the book of Ephesians next, and then after that, either go to one of the major story cycles, like the stories of Elijah, or my favorite Bible stories, which will include uh, those stories and, and many others before that segment would be done. I'll call it a season. So today, however, we continue in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 15, verse 1 today. Jesus has concluded all of his comments at the event that we denote as the Last Supper. And in chapter 14 ended with, come on, let's get out of here. And so that tells you that the Last Supper is over. There isn't much time between the end of dinner, the praying in Gethsemane, the arrest, the trial, the kangaroo court, Peter's denial, sunrise, and then the crucifixion. So this material in John chapter 15 is probably out of place chronologically. It's not likely that Jesus had them leave the room and then started talking to them about the vine and the vine dresser and the love of God. This is likely something that he taught weeks, months, years earlier that John has grabbed a hold of and put it here because it it contains this theme that he is going to really hammer, already has been for a couple of chapters, and he will until the crucifixion. And it's the theme of the Father in me, I in the Father, 
you and us, us and you. It's a significant idea to John. Your station, my station, in the person of Christ and in the personhood of God. In the personhood of God. That you that you might be in us as we are in each other. Now, I would say that Jesus probably enjoys a fairly intimate relationship with God the Father, right? In fact, it's so intimate that in theology, we can't differentiate between the two. And so we are Trinitarians. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all the same. The three in one, the one person who is three persons, but he's all one person. We don't know how to differentiate without diminishing the personhood of God. And so we leave them in this trinity. Jesus says, as he is in me and I in him, him, you and us and us in you. One, one living being. It's almost too much for us to fathom. And yet, until we fathom it, I don't know that we can make sense of the things that Jesus says about his relationship with you and me. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the original vine, the ancient vine, the one from which this entire vineyard started. I am the original vine. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. By him were all things made. I am the ancient original vine. And my father is the vine dresser, the vintner, the gardener, the vine grower. He removes from me every branch that doesn't bear fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will bear even more. You've already been cleaned by the word that I have spoken to you. You've been pruned. You've been prepared for the growing season by the word that I have spoken to you. Now live in me as I live in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it draws life from the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you draw your life from me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who live in me and I in them bear incredible fruit. Because apart from me, you could do nothing. Whoever does not live in me is pruned off like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you live in me, and my words live in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now live in my love which is actually the Father's love, right? It's the same. 
If you keep my commandments, you will be living in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I live in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment. He said, okay, you got to keep my commandments in order to live in my love. Here it is, my one commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, love one another. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. That's interesting because servant is the word for disciple. Followers. I don't call you followers anymore. I don't call you subjects anymore because the disciple, the servant, the subject doesn't know what the master's doing. But I call you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in his name. I'm sorry, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. So this whole thing about the vine and the branches has been subdivided and parsed by preachers for decades, centuries and turned into something other than what it is most of the time. Either keep his commands and bear fruit or be lopped off and shrivel up and be thrown in the fire of hell and burn, right? That's not at all what it's about. The discarding of the unfruitful branches is not, is not about judgment. It's about their disconnectedness from the, from the source of life that is the vine. In order to bear grapes plentifully, annually, a vine must be dressed. It must be pruned. My brother owns a vineyard and, and I've watched that pruning process now across, goodness, 14 or 15 years, it seems like. I think that's about what it is. He started his vineyard with these tiny little stumpy vines. They weren't even thick. They're about as big around as a number two pencil. Little sticks with roots. And, and he dug out little pots in the shaley, nasty soil, filled those, those drilled pots with really good soil, and then put a grape stick in each one of them. He built a lattice work that the grape sticks could eventually reach and grow on. He put in a drip irrigation system so that they would have a continual source of very slow dripping water. Then we waited. One year went by and some of the little sticks bore some tiny little baby things that looked like grapes, but he just picked them off. Another year went by and some of the sticks bore what kind of resembled actual tiny bunches of grapes, but he picked those off too. 
And about the third year, he began to test and taste and see what kind of grapes the vines were making. By the fourth year, he was ready to at least bottle the first crop of wine from those grapes. Now, he has those bottles. Uh, they're museum pieces in my family. We've all been strictly warned not to drink them, though some teenagers stole one from the pantry of my home one time and, and sampled it. It was sufficiently nasty that maybe it discouraged them from ever drinking wine again. Over the years, the product has become much, much better. The vines have grown much bigger. Now the old vines are as big around as a broomstick or bigger at their core. But every year after the grapes are harvested, my brother goes out into his vineyard and prunes those vines back to, to just that big stalk, that big trunk, and only the healthiest, thickest of branches. Almost all the new growth of the last year is pruned off, almost all of it. Only that which is most robust is left. And, and by late fall, we have a, a vineyard full of sticks again. And they look dead as they can be. And they look that way all winter. Until in the spring, new branches appear, new buds, new leaves. And the vines begin the process all over again of forming new growth. And from that new growth come all the grapes of that season. If you didn't prune them back, you wouldn't get new growth and you'd get very few grapes. It's really an interesting process. The life of that grape plant exists in that ancient trunk. And anything that grows on it has to bear fruit or it is fruitless to the grape farmer, worthless. There's no grapes to sell. There's no grapes to eat. There's nothing to get juice from. There's nothing to make wine from. And believe me, the vines put on all kinds of foliage that doesn't result in grapes. It, it, harvests, it harvests energy from the sun, but the grapes don't grow there. At the end of the season, you know what's going to happen to all that foliage. It's going to have to be pruned so that the life of the vine can deliver its product again. I am the ancient vine and my father is the wine grower. He prunes out every branch in me that bears no fruit and every branch that bears fruit, he also prunes so that it may bear even more fruit. All the branches get cut. Some get cut off and some are cut so that they can bear more fruit, but all the branches bear the pain. It's really kind of a stressful process on the poor grape plant. By that time, it's going dormant. And yet everywhere you lop off growth, it's, it seeps a little bit. It wounds the plant. And there are scientists who believe that 
the act of wounding the plant is what stimulates it to come back stronger. If that's true, it becomes a very apt illustration of, of the Christian life. I wish that I could tell you that if you walk with God, if you walk with Christ, you'll never have pain, you'll never suffer loss, you'll never be wounded. It's just not true. All the branches get pruned. The fruitful ones, just as much as the fruitless ones. The only difference is the fruitful branches don't get cut off from the source of life. But they still bear wounding. They still bear pruning. No matter how righteous you are, you will be part of the pruning process. Your life will be pruned continually so that you bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed. This first pruning has already happened by the word I have given you. Now live in me just as I live in you. Now this is pre-Holy Spirit, right? And yet Jesus says he already lives in them. Why? Because he's given them his word, his words, the essence of who he is with the Father, how he believes, how he lives, how he loves. They don't have to have some sunburst through the clouds conversion experience. They're believers. They have soaked it up by abiding, by living with Christ himself and in his word. How do people really come to live in a relationship with Christ? Is it because they have to have a sun breaks through the clouds revelatory moment at the altar? Well, no. It can certainly happen that way. But what if a person simply lives in God's word until God's word replaces the ungodliness within them and lives in them? and gives them life. And they never have a a good bawling, tear-shedding, altar-pounding moment. Are they less saved? No, they're not. It's shameful that Christians in today's world point fingers at each other and question the way they were saved or, or the method by which they were baptized. Nobody cares except legalists. God certainly doesn't care. Christ doesn't care. The standard of Christ is, do you live in my word? Does your life bear fruit of our relationship, of the life that I give you? Do people see life coming from you or do they see death and unfruitfulness? There are a lot of people who go around running their mouth about being a Christian and what their life bears is condemnation, judgment, and death. Those are not Christians, no matter what they say, no matter how long they've sat in a pew, no matter how many hymns they have memorized. If the word of God doesn't bring life from them and into their world, 
they're not connected to God. Live in me as I live in you. Just as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it lives connected to the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you are connected and live in me and draw your life from me. If it isn't my life flowing through you and into your world, Jesus asks, whose is it? What other options are there? Because verse five, I am the vine. There's that ego a me in Greek, that I am statement, the name of God himself. I am the vine. You are the branches. He iterates it again, reiterates it. So when Jesus says something twice in a few paragraphs, it's important. Keep the proper order of things in your mind. I'm the, the OV, the original vine. You, you are the branches. You draw your life from me so that you can bear fruit that everyone else might draw life from you. See? Get their nourishment and their sustenance, their survival from you. Those who live in me and I am them bear an abundance of fruit. But apart from me, they do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like an unproductive branch. Such a branch withers, is gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is not a message about hell. This is a message about fruitfulness. Bear fruit or find yourself on the outside. Connect yourself to the source of life in God or wither. Now, the interesting thing is that this isn't an instantaneous process. It's a process that takes time. And even those of us who have been connected to the OV, the original vine, and have drawn life from the original vine can, by our choices and actions, stop living in his word, stop drawing our life from the vine and begin to wither begin to live fruitless lives. Now the wise person would look at his life and say, wow, I don't bear the fruit that I used to bear. Where's the disconnect? The OV hasn't moved. Have I? How have I changed? What am I doing differently that has disconnected me from that source of life that brought fruitfulness to my life? You see, God calls you to stay connected, to live in his word. And I, I, would, I would just about bet. I have to believe that when we find ourselves in fruitlessness, it's because we're disconnected from God's word. When I'm not in God's word, my life is boring and fruitless. It's even boring to me. When I miss my daily time in God's word, it hurts me. When I miss my weekly Bible study with the guys I call the heretics, 
it causes a drop in my fruitfulness. It causes a drop in my joy, in my enjoyment of each day, in my inquisitiveness about God's word. When I stay connected to God's word, I see it coming to bear all around me. I see it bringing fruit just in our last episode. Now, I I took some weeks off while I wrapped up the school year and I had a lot of busyness. But during that time, I was focusing on John 14 and John 15, on this, this idea of Jesus has left us the spirit of truth in a world that so desperately needs people who will speak the truth. And, and that idea has just encompassed me, enveloped me in the last two or three weeks until I finally said, I've got time. I've got to get back to the podcast because this is too good not to share. It was time for the fruit to be born. See, this is all connected. That's why John put these, these pieces together this way. If you live in me and my words live in you, ask for whatever you wish, whatever you need, whatever you want, whatever you're short of, and it will be done for you. Wow. The connotation there is so strong, folks. If you live in my word and my word lives in you, then all you have to do is ask. He doesn't say in my name. That's that's for granted. If, If his word is living in you and you're living in his word, it is in his name. It's in his person. It's in the work that you're doing for Christ in this world. And you need something, you ask. And it will be done. If it's never been done before in the history of earth, If you need something that's never existed before in this galaxy, but you really need it to do the work that I've given you to to bear fruit to my word, well, buddy, the vine will pop one out for you. That fruit will bear in you. It will be done. That's a pretty strong promise, but it comes from the source of the life of the vine. And if the vine needs life that it's never seen before, he has the power to send it right up through the stalk, right up through the trunk, out into the branch, and bear fruit where you are. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and show yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you now. Live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll be living in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and live in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Because you know, I love you. Because you know that I love you. That should make your joy absolutely complete. 
I was at the eye doctor the other day and we talked about the cards that life has dealt us, the things we faced, the things we've come through in the last three, five, seven, ten years, the things we've survived and, and what it's done to our faith. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I've, in the last 10 years, I've come to know God's love in a way I, I believed in it before. I didn't know it that way. But I came to understand that no matter what I do, God is not going to love me more tomorrow than he does right now. And no matter what I do, God is not going to love me less tomorrow than he does right now. Whatever else changes, whatever else I affect, whatever I ruin, whatever I mess up, whatever I fail at, whatever I win, whatever I succeed at, whatever I accomplish, God loves me exactly the same with all his heart. I can't, I can't lose that. That's what the Bible says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor powers, nor principalities, nor anything in this world or out of this world. Nothing can separate us from the life in the vine. So this is my commandment, guys, gals, that you love one another just like I have loved you. That you become each other's source of life, encouragement, stamina, resilience. Wow. This is my one command. That you become life to each other as I am life to you by loving each other like I love you. There's no greater love than that a person spend their life to give life to another. You're my friends if you do these commands or this command. I'm not calling you disciples, followers, servants anymore. I call you friends now because Disciples don't understand what the master's doing. You get it now. You understand what I'm doing, where I'm going, and how this system works. Because I've made known to you everything I've received from the Father. There's no more information to give you. Now, did they get it yet? Nope. Nope. But they had it. They knew it. It was just going to take some time for it to begin to really bear fruit in them as they owned it, and began to pass it along. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you this command, that you love one another. John puts it here because it's Jesus' last great command to us. It is the most important. John understands that, and he wants you to hang on to it as though these are the dying words of Jesus. 
love each other. That's where all the power, all the fruit, all the effectiveness, all the gospel, all the kingdom, it's where it all comes from. Is the love of God in Christ, in us, lived out bearing fruit of that love into this world. If our ministries are motivated by anything else but love, they're not godly. If our churches are motivated by anything other than the love of God for our community, for lost folks, for needy people, They are misguided and not of God. I was once sitting with a group of people that were planning a ministry. There was an event that happened once a year, a few blocks from our church, and thousands of people turned up every year. It was in the late summer, so it was hot. And there was never enough to drink on the property. And so people were dehydrated. And these people from the church that I pastored said, we want to get cases of bottled water, put it in big coolers with ice, and station ourselves around the park in five or six different places and just hand out water for free. I said, that is an absolutely magnificent idea. And they said, we'll get big stickers and put our names on the coolers and then we'll get labels and we will stick them on the bottles over the existing label so people will know it's our church doing this. And one of the people in the committee said, I'm not comfortable with that. Because the Bible says we give a cup of cold water in God's name, not in the name of our church. If we do this, for the attention it can draw to us. We're doing it for the wrong reasons. Let's just put a label on the bottle that has a scripture, John 3.16, or something like that. And, And let's hand them out and say only, here's a drink of water, God bless you. I kept my mouth shut in that meeting. I wanted to see how they would work this out themselves. And everybody sat there in silence for a little while because it's hard to let go of the desire to to get attention for our church. We believe that's our mission. We want our church to grow. And so we want people to know that we're the kind of people that'll come out and give you a bottle of water. But one of the people in the meeting said, that's right. If we do what God's called us to do, people will know where it's from. People will find out. We don't have to promote ourselves. God will promote us. The Bible says, let your acclaim come from the lips of another. It really does say that. So let's just put a scripture on the bottle and hand them out for free. And that's what they did. Six coolers stationed all around the park They handed out cases and cases of water. When they ran out, they put out the call on on text message or email and 
more people donated and showed up with more cases of water. The water ministry. And not one of those bottles had our name on it. Not one of the coolers had the name of our church on it. The, the people handing out the water were instructed not to proselytize for our church, but simply to say, God bless you. And if people asked what church they were from, then they could tell them. The next week I was moving around in the community and I saw the mayor of the city. And he came over to me at my the table where I was eating lunch and I stood to greet him and he shook my hand and he said, Pastor, what you guys did last week by handing out the water is one of the most profound ministry moves I have ever seen. I wish my church had thought of that. I just thanked him. And in the weeks that followed, yeah, some people came to our church. But they didn't come because we told them it was us. They came because we didn't. They came and said, this is the kind of church we want to attend. This is how we want to teach our children to do ministry. Not for credit. Not for the reward on this earth. But kind of undercover. Giving credit to God. Asking the blessing of God on people. And not trying to drag them into our church. I said, well, it brought you. And they said, yeah because this is the kind of church we want. Now, I wish everything we'd ever done had been so well-received and pure of heart. I wish I could tell you that it was. That would not be true. But we learned. We learned as we went. We learned as we grew. We learned what bore fruit. And what bore fruit was, was sharing the love of God without concern about who got the credit. And I still believe that's what the church is supposed to be. That's who Christians are supposed to be. Jesus ends the chapter and says, I've said all this for one reason, that you might love each other.